0: So, we are doing World Religions tonight, and uh, we are going to be going over a few things, but I wanted to show you this first. So, as we just start this off, I had a couple um, charts that I really liked that I found. Um, This one was from back in 2003, and as you can see, there's a hodgepodge of different um, beliefs all over the world, Um, but it's quite interesting how this works out, because even when it comes to the United States, you have Roman Catholic, you have more in the New England area. Um, and then obviously in the entirety of Mexico, but where the United States borders Mexico, you have a lot of Roman Catholic, Catholic, Catholic um, you know, influence there. Brazil majorly, Europe majorly. Uh, and so really what this is, is this is just overall, this is more of a census type situation. But I found this, this was from back in 2003. I found a different one too. Now this one, the key is obviously super small. So if you can read that, I'll be super impressed. Um, but as you can see, the blue areas are more what they call uh, evangelical Christian areas. Now, as you can see, Protestant or evangelical Christian areas, they have the United States as mostly that. And so the way they talk about that is that a lot of the Roman Catholic centers in the United States are more big city areas like New York or Chicago or L.A. But by and large, the majority of Americans, uh, they say that they are um, Protestant uh, as compared to you have the whole of Mexico and Brazil. Um, and Brazil is probably the largest country in the entire world that has Catholics in it compared to everybody else. So that just kind of gives you a rundown. Uh, the green area right there towards the Middle East, I bet you guess what that is. Muslim. Yep. And then the purple area is more the Orthodox. Uh, gray is like unspecified, and there's a few others over there too. But I want to show you that. And then there's one more that I found. And that was this one. And this one talks about the, uh, the spread of religions in new areas. So as you can see, you've got the pink, you've got the green. The green is Islam again. So when it comes to the number one religion that is, is becoming very popular in each area, Islam is making some serious headway uh, in the entire world. Um, the pink, which I don't really know what this is, but it says folk or other.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: so folk religion. I'm assuming it's like schisms of Christianity that kind of go off and do their own thing. That's kind of what I'm thinking it is. Um, But you have Islam, Christianity, unaffiliated, folk, and other. Then Buddhist is yellow. And then uh, the brown is Hindu. And then the gray is no change. So that kind of gives you an idea of where things are going. And that was taken as of last year. Uh, There's a study that some people did with that one. So I wanted to show you at least those few things. And then tonight we're going to be talking about... Um, Catholicism. But before we get to Catholicism, let's just do this first introductory section here, and then I want to show you the video, all right? So here's the point of this entire study. You know, what do world religions believe, and what does the Bible say? And so that's going to be our final authority on these matters. It's not going to be tradition. It's not going to be the opinions of people. We want to go back to what the Bible says. And so we have to learn how to hear people out, and then take those things and then try to find a way to give them an answer from the scripture to show them what the Bible actually says. So here's some common questions and statements dealing with religion. Is there a reason why I'm alive? What is my purpose? Can I know what will happen to me after I die? There are many roads that lead to God. Many people say that. Each person can find their own way to God. All the gods in each religion are just different names for the one true God. I've heard that one before. Can all religions be right? As long as you're sincere, God will not condemn you. I've heard that one before. How can I know that what I believe is true? Why are there so many different religions in the world? There are so many differences in Christianity and other religions. How can any of them be the true religion? Religion is something created by men to have power and influence over others. I've heard that one a lot, too. Religion is a fantasy people believe in that helps them endure the difficulties of life. Faith is for those that are weak-minded. If God loves human beings, why would he send them to hell? If there is truly only one way to God, why has God allowed everything to be so confusing, etc.? I mean, I've heard a number of these. Have you guys heard these ones? So here's the deal, and this is the paragraph here. When it comes to searching for the truth and finding God, all of the above questions and statements are good to ask and to consider. But what matters most is the heart attitude behind it all. That is the most important thing. One that is truly searching for the truth will make these statements or ask these questions with a heart attitude willing to change what they believe to line up with the truth. Those that have a bad heart attitude will use these statements or questions to make excuses to continue practicing their sinful lifestyle. All true Christians need to constantly ask God for discernment and wisdom to properly fish for the souls of men and women for whom Christ died. And I'm sure you guys have faced this before. People ask these questions because they don't really want the answer. They're just asking these questions because they want to somehow either call you out or to make you doubt what you believe or to justify what they do and what they believe i mean kent and i are even talking about that with some of his friends right yeah. where they just ask these questions and if they're genuinely asking questions i'm happy to answer them but the question is, is do they really want the answer so sometimes when you're in these conversations maybe something good to ask would be do you really want the answer i mean because if someone really wants the answer then you have a great opportunity all right the next one so as bible believers we are called of god to be ambassadors of the lord jesus christ this is said in 2 corinthians 5 and acts 1 8 everyone we come into contact with ought to be able to look to us for answers and guidance through the confusing and contradictory world of spirituality can you truly look at those around you and say be ye followers of me even as i also am of christ and if not what do you need to do to be ready people should be able to say that about you If you say you're a Christian and you love Jesus Christ, then you should be able to say to somebody else, follow me and you'll understand what it means to be a true Christian. That is a great question to be asking yourself on a daily basis. It helps to keep me accountable in my own life. So the purpose of this study is to take an honest look at various belief systems in the world, expose the tactics of Satan to keep the lost blinded to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to keep the saved and effective in the work of the Lord. That's evangelism and discipleship. And know what you believe and why you believe it. We need to learn how to be more effective ministers for the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to. We've got to. And I want to show you one thing before we get into the video here real quick. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. So this morning, Pastor Tom was reading this passage in our staff meeting, and when I read through this, as he was reading through it, there's something that stood out to me that I've never even noticed before, and I thought it was really cool. It's something that I wish I could take more time to study, but I've got a lot of things going on right now, so I'm going to have to mark it and just kind of save it for another time. But 2 Timothy chapter 3 describes the last days, and in the last days... Uh, what this description here is actually talking about the church and how things are going to be within the church. And so I'll just start off at verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high minded, Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. Now who is Janus and Jambres? Yes, the two magicians are sorcerers that work for Pharaoh. So when you had Moses come in with his brother Aaron, and you know Moses threw down the rod and it became a serpent, and then they, they did the exact same thing, but something happened. Moses actually swallowed up their snake and all that kind of stuff. So those things that they did, they counterfeited those signs and wonders that they did in the presence of Pharaoh. So now this is the only place in the Bible where we have their names. so We know their names are Janus and Jambres, but it says they withstood Moses. And so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. So here you have a scenario where you have Moses who has the truth, who's doing what's right, and then you have the counterfeits who look like they're doing what's right, but it's actually a sham. And so then in verse 10, this is the part that stood out to me. But, so anytime you see that in scripture, there's a contrast here. So he's talking about someone that believed in false doctrine. They were counterfeiters. They were doing something that was wrong, but it looked good. And it says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Now, what's interesting about this is that as he's comparing... He's really comparing himself to who? Paul's comparing himself to who? In this passage, in the immediate context, Moses, right? Moses is doing what's right and what's true. So Paul's saying Moses, kind of like me in this situation. Janus and Jambres is compared to false teachers at this time. He's talking about Timothy that are going to show up in the church and doing all these things that are contrary to Scripture. So he says, "But thou hast known fully my doctrine." So what's interesting about this, and this is what caught my attention is that someone that lives the truth, I mean genuine, is a genuine believer that lives the truth, that loves the truth, that they are doing what's right, truly right, not something that's false, not false doctrine, not a false teacher, they start off with one thing. Thou is fully known my, what's the word? Doctrine. Doctrine, manner of life, purpose. Okay, so this tells me something before we go any farther on that list. Doctrine matters. What is Doctrine. What is doctrine? Give me a good definition of doctrine. Come on. Yep. Yes. What you believe. What you believe is your doctrine. So if you believe in the doctrine of salvation, according to the scriptures, you believe that Christ died on the cross... As the scripture stated, for the sins of the whole world, he died for you in your place. And if you put your faith and trust in him, that you will be redeemed and spend eternity with God. You believe in that doctrine. So all doctrine is, it's a set of beliefs. And so you can have good doctrine, biblical doctrine, or you can have false doctrine. Now, the thing about doctrine is that doctrine always leads to what in your life? Actions. Actions the decisions that you make. Because if you believe, for example, you guys are sitting in chairs. If you believe in the doctrine of sitting in chairs and that they're going to hold you up, you'd have no problem sitting down. But what if you came in with a phobia of saying, no, nope, I do not believe, I do not believe that a chair is going to hold me up. I don't. Nope, I'm not. I don't believe it. And if I do, I'm just going to fall down and make an idiot of myself. So you believe in the doctrine of chairs don't work. That's stupid. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But for the illustration, it makes sense. So what would you do if you firmly believe in the doctrine of chairs don't work? What would you do when you came in? You'd be standing. Right? You would be. And so your doctrine what you believe in your doctrine eventually ends up in your life like it will come out so your decisions are always an outcome of your doctrine if you don't believe in jesus christ and if you don't believe in the fact that he's told you to evangelize the whole world or tell the gospel to the the, all creatures and to every human being then you're not going to do it if you don't believe that jesus christ is the lord of your life then your life's not going to look like he's the lord of your life it's really simple christians should look like christians Because they believe in christian doctrine if a christian doesn't look like a christian they're not living doctrine or they believe in something else completely different now they may say they do but their life proves otherwise and so your life is a template i mean it's really a good proving ground of what you actually believe it really is so paul who lives the truth he has doctrine and it's biblical doctrine and that doctrine led to a manner of life that's the next point here Doctrine to a manner of life. So because he believes something, now his manner of life followed after his doctrine. He believed in a certain doctrine, and so then he had this manner of life. And now that he had this manner of life, he now has a purpose. So he has doctrine, comes out in his life, and now he has purpose. And then faith, how does that go into all of this? As you have doctrine, and then it's manifesting it in your life, and then you have purpose now, it's going to require great faith to keep living it because you're going to be resisted all the time. You're going to have a choice of, am I going to believe God or am I going to believe myself or this world that keeps telling me to walk away from God? I need to exercise biblical faith. And as you keep walking in obedience to the Lord, which is going to require long suffering, and that's the next one, then you'll learn how to truly love people as charity. And then you'll really learn patience, what patience actually is. So, and then persecutions and afflictions follow. And so what I love about this example is that Paul was a guy who was legitimate. He was a legitimate follower of Jesus Christ, and it worked out that way in his life. So some of us, the reason why we're not serving the Lord is because there's something wrong here. Once you have good doctrine, it comes out in your life, then you have purpose. Then you'll have biblical faith to keep going. You'll learn long-suffering. You'll be able to love people without expecting anything in return. That's charity. And you'll learn patience. And you better learn long-suffering, charity, and patience because persecutions and afflictions are coming. People that have false doctrine in their life, they believe false things. This stuff doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. They might have doctrine, but their manner of life is all screwed up. And then they have no purpose. You know what I mean? So it's a really interesting thing that I I liked here. And so as we kind of take a look at Catholicism, I wanted to point that out to you guys. All right, so I got this video. Uh, there's a couple of videos that go back to back. And so I want to show them to you here real quick. Um, there's one that's uh, about two minutes uh, and the other one's about nine minutes. But the second one is actually a Roman Catholic priest who is speaking to people, why be Catholic and not just a Christian? So I want you to listen to these things, and maybe if you want to, on the back of one of your sheets, you can take notes on some stuff on how maybe you would answer some of these things, because I want to ask you guys about them when we're done. All right, so we'll do the 10 things you might not know about Catholics, which is interesting information, and then why be a Catholic and not just a Christian.
1: us our religion remains a little mysterious and often misunderstood to the rest of the world. Here are ten things you might not know about Catholics. Number one, nobody likes to brag about their age but the Catholic Church has a pretty impressive legacy with a birthday of roughly 33 AD. It's almost 2,000 years old making it the oldest institution in the entire Western world. Number two, in 1973 the spine-tickling film The Exorcist came out and by saying, it's all just a bunch of baloney. Think again. The film had three Jesuit priests as credited technical advisors. Even creepier, director William Friedman asked one of them to come and exercise the set after a number of mysterious disasters occurred. is the world's smallest country measuring in at just over 100 acres that's one-eighth the size of new york's central park the country mints its own heroes has its own flag and even its own national anthem number five most people know that saint john paul ii was a big outdoors guy but did you know that he snuck out of the vatican more than 100 times to go skiing in the italian alps number six it in the 1920s, the world's mind was blown by the theory of an expanding universe, otherwise known as the Big Bang Theory. This hypothesis was developed by a Catholic priest, Monsignor George Lamontre. Number seven. The country of Brazil has a lot to brag on. Carnival, the Amazon, and more Catholics than Italy, France, and Poland combined. Number eight. Though you Pope John Paul II was also one of the most visible popes in history. He traveled to 129 countries, logging more than 750,000 frequent flyer miles, which is about three times the distance to the moon. Number 9. Every country depends on exports for part of its economy, including that tiny country of Vatican City. Their largest export? Postage stamps. Number 10. Catholics love patron saints. We've got the classics St. Patrick, patron of Ireland, St. Anthony, patron of last saints. But how about some seriously helpful patrons, like Saint Arnold, patron saint of beer, Saint Drogo, the patron of unattractive people, or Saint Viviana, the patron saint of hangovers. That's it for today. Hope you learned a thing or two. Check out some other spirit juice Can't have one without the right other right here. Spirit juice?
2: <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Spirit juice. All right, now this one is interesting because I, I watched this one and I really, really like this one because I think this guy is legitimate. I think that what he believes, he firmly believes it, but his reasoning is off. So, just as you listen to this, think about how would you kind of come back at him in a loving way using the scriptures or trying to find the faulty reasoning
2: that he has. All right? Okay. Hi, friends. Father Mike Schmitz, and this is Ascension Presents. I get asked a lot of times. Um, Father, so you're Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I am. They say. So what's the difference? What's the main difference between like the Catholic Church and any of the other like Protestant denominations or non-Catholic churches? Maybe it would be this. Maybe it would be authority. Um, I know that's a bad word. Uh, it's some it's, um, many of us we don't like it. We're like, authority. That doesn't. That doesn't sit right with me. What do you mean authority? I would say this. Um, that the church has the ability to teach us. They teach authoritatively. The church has the ability to teach us. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, the glory of God the Father. That the church has the ability to tell us this is true, that's not true. That the church has the ability to um, establish doctrine. And I'm not talking about some invisible kind of like universal body of believers. I'm talking about the church that Jesus himself founded back in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus looks at Simon and says, Simon, your name is not Peter, rock. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell were not prevailed against it. He goes on to say, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the interesting thing that you may or may not know. Jesus came to establish the kingdom, right? But it's not an invisible kingdom. Why? Because we can look that Jesus, as the king, establishes the kingdom. But when he says to Peter, no, you know Simon, now Peter, that I'll give you the keys to the kingdom, et cetera, et cetera, he's referencing Isaiah, the book of the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah, there is this role in the kingdom. There's a role. There's the king, obviously. But there's also the prime minister, the al habait the one who's the overseer. That when the king is gone, this person is in charge. This person has the authority of the king. It says that in Isaiah chapter 22. And it's almost word for word what Jesus gives to Peter. The keys to the kingdom of heaven. He gives the church a visible structure and an actual hierarchy. And he says, you can actually teach now. Teach in my name. The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. Be able to teach in my name. And this is exactly what happens. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, there's this big crisis. And the crisis is um, the apostles have been evangelizing the Jews. So basically they were all Jews. And uh, they realized Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. So they're sharing the good news with Jewish people. It was awesome. But then they realized, because Peter had a vision, and Paul was called to do this too, that they were called to bring the gospel to non-Jews. Which is amazing and good because I'm, I'm a non-Jew and I get, I get to be brought in, right, to the, to the people of God. The question came up, okay, so when you evangelize Jews, all they need to get is baptized because they're already circumcised. They're already in the Old Covenant. So in order to be brought into the fulfillment of the Covenant, the New Covenant, they just have to be baptized. But if you're evangelizing Gentiles, question, do they first have to be circumcised and then be baptized? Or can they just be baptized? Now you can see at least two ways why this would be a very important question. One is if you were an adult Gentile man, this would kind of be a big question you would want answered before you, do I have to do this or is this kind of optional? Um, You want that resolved ahead of time. But secondly, and even more importantly, if I need to get circumcised in order to get baptized and I'm not, that means I'm not saved. Like do we have to do this in order to be saved is the big question. The problem is, Jesus never taught about that. The Bible never teaches about this. And this is the problem the problem with a thing called sola scriptura or, or Bible alone. You know, one of the, one of the pillars of the Reformation um, was this idea that Bible alone, scriptural, you don't need the church, only the Bible alone. What about when the Bible doesn't teach something? What do we do? Well, what happened was in Acts chapter 15, the apostles came together, and again, I'm not saying some loose, kind of invisible church, but the actual structure of the church, those apostles, the people that um, Jesus himself called, Peter as the Pope, Paul and Barnabas, they have this body of the church, and the church gets together, and they discuss, and they debate, and they pray, and then they decide, they said, it seems to the Holy Spirit and to us that we should not impose this on Gentiles. They, should not, they, don't act, they do not have to be circumcised in order to be baptized. And in that moment, we can see in the Bible that the church, again, the visible church, the structure of the church, the governance, uh, governance of the church has the ability to teach. And not just to teach, but to teach definitively, not merely optionally. And if you're a student of history, you see that this is not the only time, in fact, the church has to do this again and again and again. Because people pick up the Old Testament and pick up the New Testament scriptures, which also the church gave us, another video, by the way, and, and they say, well, I come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't really God. I mean, he's clearly God. I mean, he, 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 de- he came to earth, he <laughs> rose from the dead, he's clearly God. I think he only looked like you. and that was a heresy called docetism. In fact, it was one of the earliest heresies, was that Jesus was fully God, but he wasn't fully man. In, in the church, again, not this generic, invisible church, But the actual physical structure hierarchy of the church said that's incorrect. Um, Other people came along and said, "Well, he's he's fully human, but maybe he's only like partly God, like quasi quasi God, um, like the Arians." And the church came together, Council of Nicaea, 325, and they said, "No, Jesus is fully God and fully man, two natures, human and divine, in one divine person." Now every Christian in the world believes that. Why? because in some way, whether they admit it or not, every single Christian in the world believes that the Catholic Church has the authority to teach. Every Christian who believes in the Trinity (laughs) that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, that no one's greater than the other, believes that because of the authority of the Catholic Church. Because the Church came together, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, and all the other Church councils, and declared this, that this is the interpretation of the text. And we need that. Here's the crazy thing. We need that so badly. Okay, here's a little mental exercise. Imagine that you're a God. For some of you, this will not be the first time today that you did this. And it's so important to you
1: that people you created,
2: know who you truly are. Because they don't get you wrong. So what do you do? Well, you don't want to overwhelm them with your beauty, your power, your glory, and, and truth. Because that they would have to serve you out of fear. You want them to fall in love with you. And you want them to know who you truly are. And so you start small. You start with this guy named Abraham, Or Abram, you know, change his name to Abraham. And you bring him slowly and slowly. And then his family, you reveal yourself slowly to his family and to this tribe and to this people. You call the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, and you slowly reveal yourself to them very carefully because you don't want them to get any part of you wrong. And then in the fullness of time, 2,000 years ago, you yourself actually become one of them. You become a human being. And in that, you reveal who you truly are, and you don't do it as the most powerful one or as the greatest one or as the richest one. You take the lowest place as a humble poor person, and you die as a criminal. You let yourself be overwhelmed by suffering and death. Why? Because it's so important to you, as God, that people know your, the truth and depth of your heart. And you rise from the dead, you send the Holy Spirit to the apostles, and then they write down all these things. And while they're writing these things down, you preserve it. Why? Because it's very important to you, as God, that they write down exactly what you want them to write down, and no more, and no less. And then, over the course of years, as they're translating it, as they're copying it, you, but your Holy Spirit, you guide that copying, you guide that translating so that they don't get you wrong. Why? Because it's very important to you as God that no one gets you wrong. Here's this infallible book, right? It's a book that has it's, it's without error. Now, it's not without scientific error because it's not a scientific book. It's a book of poetry, it's a book of truth, it's a book of goodness. There's a whole video about that. The point is, you compile this infallible book through fallible people. And you compile this infallible book. Now, if you were God, would it make any sense for you to then say, okay, to anyone, okay, here's this infallible book, boom, I take it, read it, tell me what you think. No, you wouldn't. Why? Because an infallible book without an infallible interpreter is a worthless book, right? The Bible is infallible, but without an infallible interpreter, it's like that's why you have 30,000 plus denominations of Christianity in the United States. Because, you know, someone picks it up and says, oh, here's what I think. Someone else books up, no, 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 here's what I think. That's one of the reasons why G.K. Chesterton, back in the day, he had said, why he was Catholic, they said, he said, because I don't need a church who can tell me when I'm right. I need a church that will tell me where I'm wrong. So if you ask, you know, what's the big difference between the Catholic church and all other non-Catholic Christian denominations, I'd say when it comes down to it, I think what it comes down to is right there, authority. For all this here, presents, my name is Father Mike. God bless.
0: Thank you, Father Mike. <laughs> All right. So, what did you notice? Just let's pull some stuff. Yeah. He used Matthew
1: 16
0: and Isaiah to, to back up the hierarchy of the church. Yes, because in Matthew 16, said, Christ said, I'm gonna build the I'm gonna build the yeah, specifically it says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. So, what's the rock there? That's the important part. Was it Peter. No, it was not Peter. But then he uses Isaiah 22. Now, anyone know what Isaiah 22 says, the one that he was referencing? Go ahead and turn there. Go to Isaiah 22. I want you to see this, because this is important. Isaiah 22. So he used the Matthew 16. He used Matthew 16:19, 19, and then he cross-referenced it with Isaiah 22. And I want to show you this, because I want to show you where he erred in the Scriptures. Matthew, Matthew 16, and then we got Isaiah 22. <clears throat> All right, Isaiah 22, and the verse is 22, but someone read 20, 21, and 22. Yeah, go ahead. You got that one.
1: A father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem into the house of Judah, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall and none shall shut, and
0: he shall shut, and none shall open. So twenty-two is the focus where it says, in the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Who is that talking about? Was that talking about Peter? No, who is that talking about? Eliakim specifically, but this is a prophecy belonging to Jesus Christ. Do you know why? You remember back with our How to Say the Bible, the key words and phrases? Look back at verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day. That is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his second coming. That's his second coming, all right? So in that day. So verse 22, where it says, In the key of the house of David, I will lay upon his shoulder. He's talking about Jesus Christ. The key of David belonged to Jesus Christ, and I will prove it to you. It did not belong to Peter. It's not something that Jesus somehow failed and then gave it to Peter, because that's what it seems like based on what he said, right? Because he says he's going to give this to Jesus. Like, Jesus is going to have this key, not Peter, Jesus. So if Jesus had to give that to Peter, then somehow it seems like Jesus kind of failed in his mission. That's what it appears to me. He probably would refute that, but whatever. Go over to Revelation 3. I want you to to see this. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and then we'll get into some details about the Catholic Church. All right, Revelation chapter 3. All right, Revelation chapter 3. Now, the context of Revelation 3, if you back it up to chapter 1 who is speaking here and giving the words of these letters to John? Jesus. Jesus is. Jesus is the one who's saying write these things. So all the words you see in Revelation 2 and 3 are words directly from Jesus Christ. Got it? Okay. So Revelation 3, look at verse 7. Someone read that one. Verse 7. Go ahead, Ken. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, He that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. Okay, Jesus has the key of David. Very clear. It's very clear, right there. Jesus has the key of David. Right there, he says, he's the one that's holy, that is true, that hath the key of David. So, just think about it from this perspective. If, and let's just say big if. If Jesus had the key of David back in Matthew 16... And then he said unto Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which is not the keys of David, but that's completely different because says key singular of David, keys of the king. Okay, that's different. But anyway, let's just say, let's just suppose we're giving him the benefit of the doubt that he thinks he knows what he's talking about, that Jesus gives the key of David to Peter. So that means that Peter is the first pope, right? And so that means that there is pope after pope after pope after pope after pope. So each pope would have the key of David, right? I mean, if we're going to follow this line of thinking, and here, this is the Church of Philadelphia, which actually took place back in 1900 when you study it out in church history. How is it possible that Jesus has the key of David in 1900, 1800 to 1900, roughly, or even before that? How is it possible that Jesus has the key of David at that time in church history and the Pope on the earth had that same key at the same time? <laughs> Thank you. It's oh. not. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, you're right. It's not. It's totally not possible. Because if Jesus relinquishes that authority to a man called the Vicar of Christ, according to the Roman Catholic Church, then that's passed on through each pope until Jesus Christ comes back again, right? I mean, we're going to follow this logic. That's what it would be. So how is it possible? It's not possible. So this dude's way off, way off on that one. All right, what else did you notice before we move on? Yeah, Kenzie. Uh, He
1: was saying that he was basically the Catholic Church is higher the Bible, and the Bible doesn't really need anything about the
0: Catholic Church. Yes, absolutely. So he said the Bible is infallible, yes. but he said that you need an infallible interpreter. So he is saying that the Roman Catholic Church is the infallible interpreter of the Bible, instead of who? Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit of God is the infallible interpreter because it says that in John chapter 16, John 14, John 15 first john chapter two it says that the spirit of truth jesus even said when when you receive the spirit he will guide you into all truth so the spirit of god wrote the bible that's second peter chapter one verse 19 and 20 and then it says that god is going to give us the holy spirit of god and in first john chapter two it says that because you have the spirit of god and you have the bible the book that the spirit of god wrote you don't need any man to teach you because you have everything you need to learn the scriptures So that is in complete violation of the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine. All right, what else did you notice? Yeah. Yes. Yes. If the Bible is infallible, it is infallible in every possible way. So it is a scientific book. Science is just catching up with what the Bible actually says. Yeah, what else we got? Yeah. That with like the
1: baptism and circumcision like together, whenever they couldn't make a decision because they said the Bible didn't have one like the people themselves made a decision in place of God? Yes. Actually making it.
0: Yes, absolutely. And with that one, too, if you notice what he said, he used the, uh, the council in Jerusalem. Nowhere in that chapter, I think it's Acts chapter 15, I want to say it is, nowhere in that chapter did they say that you must be baptized in order to be saved. But yet he made that assumption based on what he said. So that is absolutely not true. Moreover, with the other councils, The only reason why those men came to that conclusion that Jesus was fully man and fully God and that the Trinity was three in one is because the Bible says so. Not because they said so. Because the Bible said so. Just in case you missed that one. Yes, wife.
2: Yes. So that,
1: that that was really creepy. Like he, he was so hyped. was like he was so hyped up about yes. authority. Like, It was yes. kind of scary. And then it makes me think like if when their whole posse gets together, if they're all thinking like that, that's creepy.
0: It is. The Roman <laughs> Catholic Church historically, they've always held that position. They, they have. Had They have always held the position that, like, let's say, for example, you read in the scriptures and you say, well, this is what the Bible says. And then you take it to a priest and the priest reads that scripture. The priest will contradict you and then they will kill you because you're a heretic. I mean, that's that's really their history that they come from. Now, it's not always been that way, but there have been periods of history where that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Rick. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is he he hit on it for a second. But the Jesuits. Yeah. Jesuits. Think of it this way. You guys are familiar with the mafia right the, mafia. <laughs> the jesuits i gotta make sure the jesuits are the hit squad of the roman catholic church yes, yes they are yeah. they are in places of power yeah. they are the authority they are the strong men they are the guys that show up in the black suits and take care of business and you never hear a word it's no joke Yeah, they it's are true Historically, the Jesuits, they are, the Jesuits are like the mafia of the Roman yes. Catholic Church In fact, there are many times where the popes have denounced the Jesuits But still let them operate because they know They're like the black ops yes. And the early foundings of our country The Roman Catholic Church has specifically sent in Jesuits To influence political and economic and religious things within our country at its inception there's a book, it's called, it's amazing, it's called What God Hath Wrought. It's a big fatty. I mean, it took me like four years to read because it's so dry and boring. But there is sections in there where this guy, evidence, factual data, goes in and says, the Jesuits did this, the Jesuits did that, the Jesuits did that. And even though they were doing it, God overrode that and ended up accomplishing his plan because God wanted America to be established, to be a lighthouse for the world during this, this time in, in human history. Yeah. Well, I thought in his first sentence when he called himself Father, was, there's was something right there. Because he, well, I, well, this passage in Matthew um, was talking about the um, Pharisees and the scribes who are openly, they, Jesus said they love tradition, and the Catholic Church openly says they love tradition. So. Yep. there's a great picture, but then it says, so talking about them, it says, um, and love the uppermost rooms and feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, but be not called rabbi for one is your master given Christ and all ye are brethren and call no man your father upon the earth for one is your father which is in heaven right and so they'll say you know well you can't call a man your father but clearly it's talking about religious authority father right especially like Pharisees it's just exactly what they do right they like to be called that authority yep. thing yep absolutely yep you got it what else we got alright this will be the last one then we need to move on question yeah Jesuits Jesuits <laughs> u it it's like yes instead of yes Jess you it right there yeah there's some pretty creepy stuff out there with that one it falls in the category of the Illuminati all right okay so moving on from there I just wanted to show you that snippet a little bit but here's here's the thing here's the thing so so they say and this is the other thing that I want to lead into this so they say that the first Pope was Peter. If you historically look at it, Peter was not the first pope. The first pope was Leo the Great, 440 A.D. 440 A.D. was Leo the Great. Now, if you go on Wikipedia, which is like the Internet hub for solid truth, if you go on Wikipedia, they will give you a lineage of popes in secession from Jesus all the way up until current day. But really, if you search it out, you'll find out that Leo the Great was the actual first pope that was widely known across the world of the Roman Catholic Church and its influence in the world system, okay? So you can check that out. So that was the first time the pope actually showed up and had power. Okay, but it all comes back down to this. So let's hit the founder. We'll get through some of this stuff, and then we'll pick it up uh, next week for part two. Okay, so the founder. The founder of Catholicism, when you trace it back, is Constantine. Constantine. Now, some of you may have heard this information before, but it is worth repeating because this is something that you need to get burned into your hearts and minds in order for you to understand this stuff properly. Constantine. Constantine lived from 272 to 337 A.D. When you study it out, and objectively, not based on biased history, you'll find out that Constantine provided the structure of the Catholic Church, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. He was the emperor of Rome from 306 to 337, He fought victoriously against Maxentius over the right soul of rulership over the the kingdom at that point in time. And this happened. There was a key battle, and it was the Battle of Milvian Bridge where the two met in 312. Before this battle took place, Constantine has a vision, and this vision consists of a cross in the shape of the first two letters of the Greek word for Christ. And that symbol is right there on your paper. I wanted to put that on there so you saw that. This is a symbol that is alive and well within the Roman Catholic Church. And he hears a voice from heaven that says, By this sign thou shalt conquer, and proceeds to place this symbol on his soldiers' helmets and shields. And because of his experience, Constantine now considered himself a Christian. So he claims to be a Christian because he heard this voice from heaven, this sign in the sky, which is the first two letters of Jesus, and he begins to adopt this symbol and the name of God and the name of Jesus in order to win his battles. Now, because he did this, he believes he won that battle. And so then what happened after the Battle of Milvian Bridge was the Edict of Milan. It happened in 313. This was a proclamation of religious tolerance, in the entire Roman Empire with special benefits to Christians. Now, the reason why this happened was this. Think about it from this perspective. When you study Roman history from the time of Christ all the way up to Constantine, what was Rome? What did they believe? Mythology. Mythology paganism. Majorly. And they were paganistic like crazy. And so they had temples to, I mean, you can read in the book of Acts, you had temples to Diana You had temples to the the Roman gods and goddesses. They were full of paganism. That's what they were. And they persecuted Christians like crazy. I mean, you've heard stories, and I've shared stories before. you got a guy named Nero, that he was so violent and so vulgar that he would take Christians and he would throw them into places where lions would just tear them into pieces. He would take Christians and he would sew them up into bellies of pigs And the pigs would run, because, obviously. And then you'd have lions and other wild animals chase after them and eat those pigs alive, and the people inside would die. You had Christians that were impaled. I mean, talk about a spirit going up through you, impaled. And then you had pitch poured all over them, and they were lit on fire while they were still alive in order to light his gardens. This dude was evil, evil. And that was just the start of the persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire, And there was about 10 different seasons of persecution within the Roman Empire before Constantine showed up. And so when Constantine saw this vision, he heard this voice, and then he adopted Christianity. Now he has a problem on his hands. You have a kingdom full of pagan Romans, and you're adopting Christianity. And you're ruling an empire that spans—I mean, it's the largest empire on, on planet Earth. And you're ruling over massive amounts of people. As a ruler, now you have a decision to make. And what is that decision? If he claims to be Christian, and then he forces everyone to be Christian, what's going to happen? Open rebellion. rebellion. If he denounces, then what's going to happen? Rebellion. So in order to squelch the rebellion, what does he do? Makes the two come together. That's what he did. And that's why it's called the Holy Roman Empire. That's where that name comes from. It comes from Jesus Christ in the name of God being married unto the Roman Catholic Church, and it's the Holy Roman Empire. That's where this came from. In that video that we saw, did you notice how they said that the Vatican is the smallest country in the whole world where they have their own economy, they have their own flag, they have their own national anthem, they have their own piece of land? It's a sovereign state straight in the middle of Italy. It's weird. You have It's the only country in the world where you have this influence take place where it's a it's an empire but it's a religious system and they crazily just they i mean they carry weight and influence within every country in the world it's crazy it's absolutely crazy i mean you can study history it's nuts most if not all of the wars during that period even up until now the catholic church has had their hands in them it's crazy all right so he proclaimed religious intolerance or religious tolerance not intolerance religious religious tolerance in the entire roman empire with special benefits to christians Christians were granted absolute freedom and had property previously confiscated returned to them. Pagan temples offensive to Christianity were destroyed. Clergy were exempt from taxes and became paid by the state. By 324, Constantine promises 20 pieces of gold and a white robe for all new converts. And this begins the marriage of the church with the state. So what this did was it took pagan practices and just plastered God and Christianity all over it. And so people wouldn't be too upset and Then he basically paid people to become Christians, but they could still kind of celebrate their own paganism. They could still do that. And so then you have the Council of Nicaea in 325. And so what this did, and you heard the Father Mike talk about that in the video, Constantine invites all clergy to this all-expenses-paid meeting to determine the official doctrines of the Catholic Church. Delegates came from every region of Rome except Britain. And that's an interesting. That's another story for another time. This focus was on Christ and his relationship to God, and they concluded with what is known as the Nicene Creed. This creed would be revised in 381 with the additional doctrines adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. And so here's the whole summary with this dude. Constantine married the pagan Roman system to Christianity in 313 AD with the Edict of Milan. Satan's counterfeit church was born. In Acts 19, let's go ahead and turn there, go to Acts 19... Acts nineteen thirty-five 35-37. All right. So you have a circumstance where uh, Paul was in an area and the, the whole city was in an uproar. In verse 34, it says, but when they knew that he was a Jew... All with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So this is a great example of paganism within the Roman Empire. They worshiped Diana. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how, that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? It's interesting. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet... And to do nothing rashly, for ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. All right, hold on a second here. So what's going on here is that you have a pagan religion. They worship Diana of the Ephesians, and they have places where these people congregate to worship Diana, and they were called churches. That's what he just says here. They were not robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. So already in the Roman Empire, they had churches where they worshiped false gods, pagan gods, Diana, the Ephesians. So when Constantine took over, all they really did and we're going to look at this later all they really did is they just started replacing names of things. That's all they really did. So Diana, guess what she became? Mary. She did. And that's why you will find images of Mary, and you're familiar with these, Andy, from just all your time spent from a Catholic church. Oh, no, it's, it's an asset now. It's an asset to you now. But those images of Mary where she has like that glowing halo around her head and you have the woman with the, with the baby, you know, the whole virgin mother goddess with the baby. Do you realize that that image is used in multiple places around the entire planet and has been used for centuries upon centuries upon centuries? And she has different names everywhere you go. You got Isis and Horus. You've got um, you got Aphrodite. You got Diana. You got. I mean, I'm telling you, over in Hindu religions, you have a picture of a mother goddess with a baby. You have it in the Catholic Church. You have it in all these other pagan religions. All Where in the world did that come from? Because before the Catholic Church even existed, these paintings and statues existed. They existed. This is not anything that's new. They took paganism and they slapped it with Christianity titles, and it became the Roman Catholic Church because they wanted to appease the pagans in the Roman Empire in order for them not to have an uprising of rebellion against Constantine. All right? Study it out. It's exactly what it says. All right. Number two Augustine. Augustine was a bad dude. I don't care what you hear. You will go to Bible school, and you'll get classes on theology and church history, and they will tell you all day long that Augustine was a good dude. He was not. He was not. I get sick and tired of it. I hear it all the time. I went to Moody Bible Institute, and they praised and adored Augustine. They made us read at least one of his two most well-known books, and they wanted us to write a report on them. And I'm like, okay, I'll write the report. And I did, and I backed it up with history and facts and I got an A on it, but I ripped them into pieces. Yeah?
1: you
0: uh, the image of No. City of God was one, and Confessions of St. Augustine was the other one. Yeah. So they had us read Confessions of St. Augustine, and then I ended up writing a report on that, which is pretty interesting. All right. So here's a snippet of Augustine. Augustine. He provided the theology to complement the structure of the Roman Catholic Church. He was one of the most influential theologians of all time, but not for the better. He concocts a doctrinal theology that mixes all of the false teachings from the previous 300 years with a little bit of truth. Remember, Satan always mixes in a little truth to make things look good. He will do that every single time, even in your life. He will will give you something good in exchange for something that's better. He will. Because he doesn't want you to have what's better or best. He wants you to just compromise with what's good because eventually he'll get you down the road even farther. So, examples of Augustine's beliefs include the man is a two-part being only, which goes against Scripture. Man is a three-part being. Augustine believed in infant baptism, which is not scriptural. He believed that everything was created at once and not in seven days, so he doesn't believe in a literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. The Bible is not to be taken literally, but metaphorically, that came from Augustine. Sacraments are vital and only valid if administered by the Roman Catholic Church that started with Augustine. The Jew is God's chosen people and to be respected. So he did believe that. So we'll give him credit for that one. But that's just a snippet of some of the things that Augustine believed. All right. And so we'll end with authorities, and then we'll pick it up with uh, the rest of this next week. So authorities, because we got to hit what Father Mike was talking about. Authority. So Father Mike believed that authority was the Roman Catholic Church, whereas we, as Bible believers, believe that the authority is the Bible, the Scriptures. Absolutely. So authorities within the Catholic Church— they believe that one of their authorities is the Catholic Bible. Now, the Catholic Bible contains additional books called the Apocrypha, and um, and just so that you're not confused, because oftentimes, oh, you want me to spell that one for you. Okay, you ready? A p o c r y p h a, a p o c r y p h a, A-p-o-c-r-y-p-h-a. A-p-o-c-r-y-p-h-a. Apocrypha. Got it? Apocrypha. All right. So, so that way you're not confused because you may have heard this from other people because some people that tried to say stuff against us because we use the King James Bible, they'll say, well, isn't the, the Apocrypha in the King James Bible? All right, hold on a second. So back in 1611 when the King James Bible was originally published, yes, the Apocrypha was in it. But where was it? It was between the Old and the New Testaments, and it was used for historical purposes only. The Catholic Bible does not do that. The Catholic Bible interweaves the apocryphal books in the Old Testament. That's what they do. Because they hold them as equal authority with the rest of Scripture. When if you read them objectively, you'll find that they contradict themselves all over the place. So that's the apocrypha. This Bible, the Catholic Bible, is traced back to Alexandria, Egypt. Which, by the way, just look up Egypt in the Bible and notice how many times that it's bad. Every time. Every time. Every time you see Egypt show up in the Bible, it is always bad. It's one of God's rules of consistency in the Bible. It's traced back to Alexandria, Egypt, to the Codexes Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and also from the Latin Vulgate, primarily translated by Jerome. And Jerome was a Catholic dude. All modern translations in existence today trace back to this corrupt line of manuscript except the KJV. Study it out. It's the truth. This is one of those things that I was never told, but once I started doing my own homework, I found out that this is totally true. Every other translation of the Bible is traced back to Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. every single one of them, every one. And Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, they are found primarily, well, one was found in the trash can of a monastery because it was going to be used for just lighting on fire in order to keep someone warm, and someone accidentally found it. So that tells you how much that was used, not at all. And the other one was found in the Vatican Library because no one used it. No one used it. It was just up on a shelf and somebody happened to find it. So two copies of scriptures that no one ever used, no believers, no Christians ever used, ended up becoming the authority for all modern Bible translations after 1611. It's history, but they don't tell you that stuff. They don't tell you that stuff. They mask it. Many verses have been altered or removed similar to translations like the niv nasb etc and some great examples is acts 8 37 and 38 those have been totally totally botched in newer translations you won't even find it in in the niv and most do not believe in the final authority or preservation of god's word all right so at that point we got to stop and we got to ask what does the bible say very very clearly and we'll end here god promised to keep and preserve his words I mean just read Psalm 126 and 7, Psalm 119:89, Matthew 24:35. God said that his word is forever settled in heaven, that he will preserve his words unto the end of the world, and Matthew 24:35 says almost the exact same thing, that not one, not one of his words are going to fail. And God's words are magnified above his name. So that means that God's very character and reputation are based upon the written words of scripture. So if God is not going to keep his word intact and free from error, then God is a liar and we shouldn't even be here tonight. That's what God has said. Psalm 138 verse 2, God says, I have magnified my word above all all his name, his whole name. Everything that he is, his reputation, he's magnified his word above all that. All right, so that deals with one of the authorities and we'll hit the rest later because they hold the authority of tradition. They hold the authority of the magisterium of the church, which we'll talk about next week as well. And then we'll move on to some of their the seven sacraments, which is the core doctrine of the Catholic Church. Stephen, there is one good Catholic Bible. Yeah. What's that? It is a purdy paperweight. It's a purdy paperweight? The Catholic Bible? I'll keep that in mind. I was looking for a paperweight the other day. Yep. Um, yeah. the home, yeah, on top better top Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and nice. And if you notice this, if you read this part, I thought I told Jamie, you said when the book was re-advised in 381 yeah. My unit number, Constantine married and played a Roman system in 313, my birthday. Nice. It's like you were destined to be a Catholic. You were destined to be a Catholic. a right? church. Yeah. of the 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 creepy guys. guys. Right? Yeah. 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 So what that crazy. <laughs> not <happen? Christ? laughs> <laughs> 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 There you go. All right, good question. All right, let's pray and let's get out of here. God, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for giving us an infallible standard that uh, can never be shaken. Um, It doesn't matter what anyone else says or what anyone else thinks. What matters is what you have said. And thank you for giving us a book that we can hold on to more than anything else in this world. I pray, God, that we would use these things wisely. We don't want to know this information to attack or berate other people that believe these things, but so that we would have a heart for them. Because there are so many people that are trapped in these systems that they are literally enslaved by these false doctrines and it's going to send them to hell and we need to know how to talk about these things and how to love people and to show them the truth and to just be who you would be if you were in our shoes with these people that believe these things god we love them and i pray we'd remember these things so we'd be sensitive to people that we would love them but we'd not shy away from the truth we just be wise about it thank you god we love you we pray this in jesus name amen